1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, this is the New Books Network and I'm your host, Armand Gildas. Today we're going to talk about Scott Stonington's beautiful ethnography, The Spirit Ambulance, Choreographing the End of Life in Thailand, that came out of the University of California Press in 2020. Welcome to our podcast, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So um, let's get to know you a little bit first. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to anthropology?
0: Yeah, Um, my name is Scott for all of our listeners. Nice to meet you all. Um, I am an anthropologist and that's part of most of what we'll talk about today, but I'm also a physician and I did a joint MD-PhD training program. Um, The PhD was in anthropology and I trained in general medicine, and then I did a residency and um, practice medicine in the United States, which is where I'm licensed to to practice. Um, So that's good context. Before I answer your question, which is about how I came to anthropology, which happened way before all of that. So um, in my undergraduate degree, um, I went to the university that I ended up choosing, partly because they gave me this, this, funding package where they were trying to recruit people, but also to get people doing research early. And so I had, when I came into the university, I had this grant to use. And I thought, you know, I'm, who knows what I'll end up doing. I want to do the funnest possible thing with this money because it was just given, I didn't have to apply for it. I didn't. And so I poked around and I thought, you know, what I really want to do is travel and I had gotten very interested, I'm also a musician, and I, had, I play piano, and I had gotten very interested in, um, in drumming in West Africa. And so I decided I'm going go to go to learn how to drum in West Africa. What is the academic discipline that would send me to do something weird in a very faraway place? And I quickly came upon anthropology. And I had intended just to go have some experience at, with that. And then I completely fell in love. I needed to do these sort of official things to start to turn it into a project. And then the more I, basically the grant worked exactly the way it was supposed to. It turned me into this ultra geek researcher because I thought I was using the grant, but it totally used me and turned me into what it wanted, which was to get hooked on the intellectual questions that are connected to how we communicate and experience across differences. Um, so that was early on in my training. Um, I was also really very enthralled by the human body or by, by biology in general. And so I worked in biological labs and I loved all the questions there, but in the back of my mind, or even just actually in my entire being as I was moving through my undergraduate degree and I was in these labs that that were these closed spaces that smelled like chemicals and I was pipetting things just over and over again to answer some question that I had designed six months before. I was just in the back of my mind, I I basically hated that. I loved the questions, but I hated every minute of doing it. And I remembered being in this place in West, in Ghana, in West Africa, with all of these totally complicated, fraught issues. What was I doing there as this totally young white guy from the middle of nowhere who had some rich university who could pay him to go do this thing? And it was, my life was just like so weirdly contrasted in all of these very upsetting ways with the people's lives where I was was. And all the questions were really fraught and messy. And yet every second of doing that, of opened me and my gaze it involved connecting with people it involved understanding it was basically the opposite of working in a biology lab um, day in and day out so i eventually just realized that i was was hooked on that mode of engagement Um, and also through that, I, I, I won't share as much how I decided to become a doctor because I had had very much not wanted to be a doctor, but it was a similar kind of revelation about connecting with people and, and, a, and a mode of engagement with them. Um, and in many ways, actually, medicine and anthropology are really similar in how they engage with people and their stories and the world. Um, that's a probably more of an answer to your question than you w- would have wanted, but... Um, so I, at the time I decided I was, I was going to medical school and that I wanted to do this additional pursuit an additional identity that was more creative than medicine and more intellectual than medicine. Um, and at the time doing an MD, PhD in anthropology just wasn't even really a thing. Um, so I actually just called all these MD, PhD programs and asked them if they would, Accept um, an application from me, and most of them said, "You want to study what is that?" And they would start, Goog- you know, <laughs> googling, or at the time they were, you know, asking the person next to them, "What is anthropology? Do we fund that?" Um, so it ended up all along. It ended up being this kind of um, or- organic, creative, weird thing to do. Um, that interestingly now is super well established. So I think there are like twenty plus. Um, MD-PhD programs that are fully funded by the federal government that support anthropology. So it has, it has like moved into the limelight of, of being central as a way we could research and think in medicine. And part of that is because of how, um, how connected it actually is. There's a, there are ways in which being an anthropologist physician is much less awkward than being a basic science physician where you go from your patients to the lab and you're pipetting and it smells like chemicals and you're not actually talking to any human beings. So being an anthropologist, it turns out, is just very easily integrated um, into the intimate gathering of stories that we do um, in both fields, anthropology and medicine.
1: Oh, that's such a a fascinating story to listen to as well. Um, And how did this book came to be? So um,
0: this book... Actually, interestingly, um, one of my anthropology advisors once said to me, you're the only student I've ever had who knew exactly what they wanted to study and then studied it all the way through. Um, So I decided early on in my training that I was gonna study end-of-life care in Thailand. And um, it was one of those lucky things, that turned out to be so rich to look at that I felt all the way through like I had to do almost nothing other than just be there because it was so vivid and it tapped into so many things that are deep in the human condition that are relevant everywhere. Um, I think part of that, so the way it came about is that I, in my training, I did two years of medical school And then I switched over and did my full PhD. And then I went back to medical school. And in those first two years of medical school, um, I studied medicine in San Francisco and and my medical school there um, had a lot of expertise and specialty in the field of palliative care, which is um, learning to take care of people as they pass through their, their end of life and die. And totally amazingly to me, all of my happiest faculty members were palliative care doctors so there was this strange paradox that right up front i felt like i needed to figure out which was how if you have signed on to a field medicine that is has taken as its goal the conquering of the human body and the destruction of disease as this kind of war metaphor that you're either victorious or you fail are the doctors who have decided to embrace the end of life and the decay of the body, the happiest doctors you run into. So it's my research kind of started on a personal level because I needed to figure out how to be a happy doctor. So a good way to do that was to talk to everybody about what was making them happy or not. And it quickly became clear that there were some things that were kind of logistical about the U S health system that structured this, like doing end of life care was just less annoying than other areas of medicine where you just fill out tons of paperwork and have these short patient visits and you're doing, but that was a small part of it. Most of it was this kind of, um, forced or chosen engagement with the deepest questions about the human condition that somehow cut through all of the noise that seemed to be the stuff that dragged other physicians down over time. It was like hearing doctors talk about this kind of hospice or palliative care where you you show up and you're there for really for people's symptoms. So you're very connected to their is suffering, but you're also there for all this existential questioning and all these family dynamics and um, forms of meaning that are getting made as people negotiate the rearrangement of their whole social world as somebody is through the, in the process of leaving it, um, that people would talk about dropping into that space like everything else just disappeared. And... They would have these moments that, and you can hear, you know, the anthropologist in me. Of course, now I'm running this side narrative about this long history of the priestly role of the doctor in in, in Catholicism and how um, the moral world of the physician or the requirement is that you cut through the worldliness of things into the deeper um, the deeper stuff that structures who we are as human beings. But anyway, as a medical student, that was awesome. To me, (laughs) it was awesome because it was just so rich and emotional and rewarding. And the more I got into it, the more paradoxically rewarding it seemed. How was it so rewarding to sit at somebody's bedside in their last days of life while they're dying? Even... I don't know who will be listening to this podcast, but I imagine you listener to the podcast may say that sounds absolutely insane. Why wouldn't that cause all of this questioning or pessimism or doubt about the utility or futility of what we are doing in life. But it was, it's like, it was this weird sort of, I don't want to use the word addiction, but there was, there was this kind of the same thing that had made me want to travel and do anthropology in the first place brought me to that space because it was just like a place where you get to show up and all of this meaning gets poured into it and you get to be a witness to it and you get to be a participant in it in a way that is really helpful and meaningful. So that was my first two years of med school. I got obsessed with that. And then as I started to think about moving into anthropology, there was this other question that lurked there, which is, why was what is it about the end of life that is so meaningful is it just because i was in the us and there was this long catholic history of the priestly physician who like shows up and takes this sort of spiritually arrogant role in <laughs> trying to craft people's the meaning of their end of you know is that just such a old an old story that it had made its way into all of the sort of cellular makeup of everybody that i was working with Or is there something about the end of life everywhere? Is there something human about it, right? And this is a, now we're at to a really big question in the field of anthropology. For the listeners who aren't anthropologists, the word anthro means human and ology means the study of it. So this is the big question of the field. Are we, is there anything universal about us as a species or is everything in the details of how our social world is put together. Um, That seemed like the end of life might give me access to that. So I decided that the ultimate question there was about the role of the specificities of place and time. Something in anthropology we think of as used to think of as culture, but we now have all sorts of tools to think about that include lots of things that are much more interesting than culture, like globalization and social forces and how the structures of the worlds we move through affect things and how do politics work? And I'm not going to go on a whole list of everything in anthropology, but how much is end of life special to a place versus something that is universal to humankind? So... That's how this book came about. I didn't tell you anything about how I chose Thailand. I don't know if you want to know that.
1: Most definitely, yes. <laughs> yeah. So
0: that was um, so for those of those who are 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 hoping to encounter this book. Um, I'm trying to figure out how many of the punchlines to tell, but I'll, you know what? I'm going to give the very the very official formal reason that I chose Thailand, which is that I got interested not just in that. Question about end of life and how it varies in different places. But I, I got particularly interested in the role of high-tech medicine or the modern hospital in affecting that because a lot of the narrative in palliative care and hospice care and end of life care in the United States is about the ways in which the runaway power of high-tech biomedicine has the potential to or maybe has completely messed up the end of life for people. And we have this sense that you there is a place and it might be found in the intensive care unit or it might be found in the person who's in their home who has an implantable cardioverter defibrillator in their chest that will shock their heart anytime their heart tries to stop so that they have become these cyborgs of trying to live forever that there's this experience of the world that comes from having this body that has been kept alive past the natural point of death and it is a person who has sort of chosen that but also had that imposed on them on the kind of the conveyor belt of having made a few choices to join in biomedicine and then one thing leading to another, and before long, they're on life support in a vegetative state in the intensive care unit. So, we have this narrative that the end of life has not only been changed by medicine, but it has been really mucked around with and actually has turned death and dying, which we imagine to have been this ancient natural part of our experience has now gotten owned by somebody else who at some point starts making decisions that no longer make sense to us about our bodies and our lives. So I was interested in whether that same narrative about medicine was true in other places where there's high-tech medicine, or is that something that we are like really attached to in the United States where we have particularly you know, turned medicine into a prof- profiteering and, um, and uh, a, a huge, what, you know, so- sociologists call a total institution that sort of has its own, its own um, momentum and desires and incentives that makes it want to own more and more parts of our lives. So when I decided that, my options were actually relatively small because I could choose to go to a place that was very low resource, And then the story would be a very important story about access to biomedicine and what happens in a place where it's either not present at all or it's present in these really patchy or minimal ways in people's lives. Or I could do a story about what happens in places that are really rapidly building up biomedicine. And that put me in the zone of middle-income countries that have some form of healthcare policy that allow people access to it. And there just aren't very many of those places. Uh, So that, and and Thailand is like the paradigm of that, of excellent public health policy, rapid development of the, the biomedical hospital. So I just, I got really interested in, if you have over the last 15 to 20 years from when I did the research for that book, built up all these super high-tech hospitals, how are those fitting into people's lives? Um, is it the same as in the US, where we were, it, the hospital brings with its technology this kind of package of problems that come with it and ways of solving those problems? So do ideas travel with the technologies of the hospital or is something different happening in those places? So that's the official reason I chose Thailand. The, there were a bunch of personal reasons one being that I I grew up in a Buddhist family and I was really interested in understanding Buddhism more. And as a musician, we already talked about music a little bit. I had always really wanted to learn a tonal language where part of what you do is sing meaning. I don't, I'm a horrible singer, but anyway, I was just interested in the connections between music and language. So it made it a pretty easy choice out of those small number of countries to pick
1: Thailand. Maybe it's a good uh, leeway to the title of the book, which also is a story in itself, I feel. Uh, could you tell a bit about the Spirit ambulance?
0: Yeah, so in order to tell about the spirit ambulance, I have to tell a little bit about the setup of what's going on in the book. So the simplified version of what of how the hospital has gotten plugged into or mixed into people's lives in Thailand is that for a long time, people have talked about how children owe their elders, their parents, a debt of life for having been given a body at birth. And as a quick aside, people who have interfaced with um, Asia in various ways will hear these sort of old, old tropes about Asian cultures that there are senses of filial piety. Filial piety is a word that, that people sort of initially used to talk about China and, um, and the way people are organized into families, including with their ancestors who are no longer alive. Um, and this is a, li- a little bit different than a generic sense, at least, of honoring your elders. Because this debt of life is really a very physical bodily debt that people owe for having been given a body at birth. And a good way to explain this is that physical objects and particularly biological living objects in Thailand in a kind of sense of a mixed religion where the history of thailand has been has had all of these buddhist influences and all these hindu influences and then a lot of things that fall under the umbrella of animism and animism is based in the idea that the material world is infused with immaterial spirit of some kind and so for in in thailand physical bodies like the organs of a body are particularly imbued with these spirits because it's part of what makes them alive and vibrant and people talk about how a child is made out of a fusion of morally inflected body parts of mother and father. And in the sort of older version of that, it's not sperm and egg. In fact, people talk about it being a blood clot of the mother and a blood clot of the father. And I, I love. We're on lots of digressions here, but I'll get back to the point. Uh, but I love hearing. Um, I love studying nicknames for children in various places around the world because they show you so much about intimacy and family and also just about about meaning because giving nicknames to children i know i have two small children and i'm i call them like 427 different things and it's like this zone that is acceptable to just play with words and names all the time and it's just a huge site of meaning making so one of the nicknames for children in thailand is my little blood clot and calling your kid my little blood clot is saying, oh, you're part of my body. That's a very very intimate, cozy thing to say, but it's also saying you owe me <laughs> because this object, my blood, was infused with all of this power, and that gift has created a moral debt that you have to me. And so as um, people get to the end of life, their children start to engage in this debt process where they want to pay back what they owe to their elders before their elders die. And the best way to pay back that debt of life has changed over time. And people talk about how 20, 30, 50 years ago, it was paid with caregiving in the village with herbal medications and food and, and um, other forms of comfort as people were in their dying process. But, As Thailand has hyper-technologized its healthcare system, the optimal place to pay back that debt of life has become the hospital. And as they have built intensive care units where full of this super powerful technology and a stay in the ICU has come to be seen as a really advantageous thing for this process, not just for saving people's lives, which people are also trying to do, of course, but Dying in the hospital is a really bad idea. And the reason is because hospitals are haunted by unhappy spirits that have died without resolving the business of their life. And therefore, spirits have this kind of sticky, unresolved metaphysical residue that they are able to on to other people in that environment or other spirits in that environment so it, it's a kind of polluted space it's not just polluted like it's in the atmosphere but there is a kind of um volition of sticky unresolved business that other spirits might might grab on to you if you were to emerge into that space and the reason that's true in hospitals is because hospitals are where people die unresolved bad deaths um if you get hit by a car suddenly and you're rushed in an ambulance to the hospital and they're unable to save you and you have all this unresolved business in your life, then there you are as a ghost that is very likely to haunt other people to try to get that business resolved. So Thailand has, um, Thailand has excellent cinema and, but one of the best areas of Thai cinema is horror movies. Um, And it's partly because of this really plot filled, meaning rich understanding of what ghosts are um, that ghosts, you know, they have, they have work to get done. They're trying to move on in life. Actually people, if anybody, if any listeners love horror movies, it's just kind of actually the logic of ghost movies in lots of places. Like the ghosts want to move on and be at peace, but they've got some reason that they can't and they, they want you to help them. Um, So But all horror movies in Thailand have scenes or most have scenes in hospitals because that's where the bad deaths generate the spirits that are involved. And there's lots of vivid stuff that happens in the hospitals. Like the first victim of the ghost is always the medical intern who represents Western rationality and the inability to understand the connection between the material and the spiritual. Um, So, so people want to get now after the hospital and it's very high tech, very rational solutions to problems has gotten woven into people's ethical duties and entanglements with their families so that people want to get to the hospital to have some time in the intensive care unit to pay back this debt of life at the end of life, but they have to not die in the hospital. So what has emerged from that is this very specific strategy to try to resolve this ethical dilemma separation between the paying back of the debt of life and the actual dying. And this strategy is this wild ride in a vehicle from the intensive care unit to try to get people home so that they can, their spirit can separate from their body in a spiritually advantageous place. So that's why people talk about this as an ambulance ride, but they talk about it as an ambulance, not for saving the body of the person, but for transporting the spirit of the person to an, a, a good place before death. So that's where the, the title, of the spirit ambulance comes from.
1: And how was it for you as a, a US trained medical uh, practitioner to be on, the, on these ambulances and follow this process?
0: Yeah, so the f- the first answer is that it was just so mind-blowing and exciting. The first time it happened to me, I was just like, what am I doing right now? <laughs> what is happening? Uh, that's just sort of a description for, our, for listeners about what it's like doing ethnographic field work, where a lot of the time you spend gathering data and learning context, and then there are these moments when everything comes together in this totally wild way. Um, And then as a Western-trained biomedical person, I was a medical student at the time, um, so I wasn't a a trained or licensed doctor. So that made it um, full of all of this ethical confusion for me, um, which actually became the heart of understanding what was so interesting about it this mixture of biomedical intervention and expertise and this ethical spiritual framework that had totally gobbled it up and incorporated it. Um, so for example, um, in Thailand, the 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 Vedic based understanding of the body divides the body into the four el- elements of nature, which are earth, air, fire, and water. And for the body, that means um, Flesh, breath, um, uh, warmth, and blood. I did that in order. I don't. It's not usually the order we say it in Thai, but um, so the last element of the body to separate from the spirit is is the is the breath. And so in Thailand, they talk about withdrawal of life support that requires a breathing tube like if you're attached to a life support machine with a tube into your lungs that's breathing for you, in the US and Europe, withdrawal of the endotracheal tube is talked about as passive euthanasia, meaning the person is trying to die and you're just removing the thing that is preventing them from dying. So that is not considered killing. It's not even considered, it's considered we, we, are, we, we are doing this thing to keep you alive, and we are going to stop doing that thing. In Thailand, it's considered active euthanasia, partly because of how it feels. Because if the breath is the last thing, it's the last barrier between life and death, it feels like you're reaching down somebody's throat and pulling their spirit out of their body, basically. Um, So... In hospitals in Thailand, they, in most scenarios, they don't withdraw life support. They don't remove endotracheal tubes. So when I was first hanging out in hospitals with doctors, everybody was like, oh, that is unethical in Thai bioethics. We don't do that. It is considered active euthanasia. They're saying all these official things. And then suddenly, I get in the spirit ambulance. We take somebody off of life support and attach them to a bag ventilator, which is this sort of bag pump that you use to blow air in and out of people's lungs. And the spirit ambulance at the hospital where I was was a side business run by the hospital gate guard, who whose job most of the time was to give information to people who arrived at the hospital and let their car through the entry gate. But he ran a side business, which was... Um, He would get a call on his cell phone that somebody was in the ICU who needed to make it home in the spirit ambulance, and he would abandon his post at the gate, and he would get in his pickup truck, which he had outfitted with a mattress and two oxygen tanks and an IV bag pole where we could hang IV medications if necessary. And he would pull that up behind the intensive care unit. And the nurses from the intensive care unit would wheel the patient down and load them into the truck for him. And the first time I got swept into this, my job as the most medical person around, no matter how many times I said, I'm a medical student, I don't know what I'm doing, people would say, that's ridiculous, you're more medical than we, the family members who are going to be doing this are, or the hospital gate guard my job became to bag ventilate the patient. And there I am thinking, oh my gosh, this is in this place. This is like, I am the last stop here between life and death more so than anywhere because the breath is literally the thing. Every breath that is squeezed in there is actually the material of the person's body that is keeping it connected to the spirit. So the casualness of the whole thing just was so stressful for me that everybody's like, oh yeah, this is, you know, it's a business run by the gate guard. And we're just going to get in here and here, you just bag ventilated and, and here, take their pulse. And if he dies along the way, then you have to let us know because we have to go from racing through traffic as fast as possible and swerving around mountain curves to like suddenly driving really slowly. And um, this thing that to me felt biomedical in this way that the place I had been trained, all of biomedical intervention was this really formal thing owned by these people who who had trained for 13 years in their medical residency and had this aura of, 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 of doctor. And where we had kind of like, everybody was hooked for many years on watching Grey's Anatomy. And there was this like a whole social universe that you had to be part of to be in that privileged category of people who could hold that kind of life vital um, moment of someone else's life, and here we I'm in the back of a truck with family members, and the guy who's the hospital gate guard on this dirty mattress that is part of his business, and um, I just felt so I, I I I it was amazing partly because of how I was like woven into it, but woven into it in a way that was just so informal. Even though it involved an endotracheal tube and a bag of ventilation and oxygen tanks and a bag of blood pressure support medications that the hospital had just given the family to take home with them. So that's a little bit, you know, when then because of that, all of the roles that were foisted on me as the quote, most medical person around were um, very disruptive and unsettling. So the first time we arrived to somebody's house and we carried this person up on a mattress into the house where their family had been alerted by cell phone that we were arriving and they were um, had prepared the whole atmosphere to have everything be the opposite of what I described about the hospital as a place with all of the person's favorite possessions that made it feel warm and cozy and familiar. And everybody who cared about them, who were relatives or friends had piled into their, their living room of their house. And we carried the woman up into the, into the room and a whole set of activities had been orchestrated to, try to re- resolve any of that possible sticky um, attachment to this life that might make her an unhappy spirit. So people would ask her forgiveness and give forgiveness um, um, to her for things that they had perceived wrong. Or um, So it was just this whole wildly orchestrated, again, sort of formal and informal feeling thing. And then all of that happened and they turned to me and say, okay, time to take out the endotracheal tube. And suddenly I'm being asked to do this thing that everybody had told me with in no uncertain terms in the hospital was totally an unethical thing to do. But here in the home, is it because we had left a biomedical setting and it was no longer the terrain of the doctors who train and think formally in bioethics, or is it because we were in a place where removing the tube was now going to be okay? So even if it was kind of an active form of killing, it was this active form of killing that had now arrived in a place where that was a loving and compassionate thing to do and therefore no longer unethical to do. And so, of course, I just totally freaked out and clammed up in that moment. Like, first of all, this was not part of my this was not part of my. Uh, human subjects research protocol when I described it for doing my anthropology research (laughs) I would be making a decision about whether I'm committing active or passive euthanasia so anyway I said no and then the hospital gate guard just did it and it was clearly ethical enough to be part of the services that he provided as part of his business (laughs) So, um, so the answer to your question of what it was like to be part of this is that um You know, it it was confusing, but not just in ways that were about culture shock, that were also about all of these mixtures of ethical frameworks that were sort of being negotiated and even a little bit confusing for the people involved there. If 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago, you'd asked about whether you could remove an endotracheal tube from somebody in their home versus in the hospital, it just wouldn't even have been a question. And so since the hospital and me kind of is this identified with it in a way, since the hospital had gotten folded into this really complicated ethical strategy that people were trying to get done, um, then with all of my bio-ethical, biomedical frameworks, I got pulled into that also in just as complicated and confused and kind of um, improvised a way.
1: Wow. I mean, um, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to be in that position right at that that moment. Um, I was also very interested in this idea of the heart-mind-energy or uh, I'm gonna say Kamlang Chai, but please correct me if I if that was horrible. That was great. Uh, Gamlang Chai. It's, it's sort of more like a. Gamlang Chai. Lang chai. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm familiar with this concept through other kinds of spiritual traditions, uh, which would call it maybe life energy or the openness of the heart chakra, etc. Maybe you can explain a bit more about um, the concept itself and what it does. And I'm also curious if you noticed any differences between those those of your interlocutors who were said to have a lot of gam chai jai and those who didn't.
0: Yeah, great question. So for listeners who may or may not um, have engaged with the text of this, um, I'll give a little background, which is that the emotional vocabulary in the Thai language, for the most part, is centered around this word jai, which is a combined heart-mind Entity, it's where thinking happens. It's where feeling happens. So if you you know if you get a Thai dictionary and search for words that have the word "jai" in it, I, I don't have a number. That would be a fun number to come up with. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of phrases that include this, and they range from things that just are mean very straightforwardly some kind of emotional experience to things that deal with the nature of this part of the human being, this jai in some kind of way. Um, And so most people who learn Thai or get into Thai and most Thai people who are just thinking Thai and doing Thai all that don't have to question the fundamental nature of the person every day as they move through these words. But there are a few versions of this word that require getting deeper into the understanding of what this part of a human being is. And I was thrust into that because, so for a quick translation, jai, it means like heart-mind energy or the animating spirit of the heart-mind or, um, uh, so it, I, I got thrust into this because I would be talking to people about their medical care and everyone I would talk to about details of what was happening, about surgeries they needed to do or whether whether it, whatever the details were that were physical, people would say, none of that really matters. The thing that matters most is taking care of this person's heart mind, their their heart mind energy, their Gaman Jai. And to understand that, we have to go back to this idea of the animating forces that give life to things. When we were talking about the dead of life and how these biological organs are sort of um, kept vibrant by a type of spirit or immaterial energy that keeps them alive. Um, that is true in Northern Thailand of all the organs of the body so that every, a person is made up of all of these different sub, sub components, each of which has its own kind of history and background in its own future. And we haven't talked yet on this podcast about karma, about the rules of cause and effect that link things together through time. But you can imagine yourself with this body where each of the parts of you that has vibrancy has an animating force in it that has its own history and its own future that has been crafted by other things. Um, there is a part of the human body that people refer to as Quan, which is like the overarching animating spirit of your whole self. Um, and if you lose it, you, you get just kind of listless and energyless and kind of lack the you know you could imagine this as a, as a type of description for one kind of depression or chronic fatigue or that sort of thing. Um, but the thing that people were talking about was the animating force, the quan, of the heart mind, the part of you that thinks and feels. And people would talk about it as um, they would translate it sort of like um, being in good spirits, right? So you could imagine losing heart. We have all these words in English or in French, there's like um, courage is this word in French that you can like, oh courage, like you can have your courage or you can lose your courage. And if you lose it, it's like a little bit bigger than just not being brave. (laughs) It's like not having your vitality. So people brought that up because part of what they were cultivating in their loved ones as their loved ones were getting sick was the ability of their body and their heart that felt and their mind that thought to work together as a coordinated person that could move them towards health. So even just in terms of cure, people would say, okay, yeah, the surgery that is coming up is important, but it won't work if the person has lost their heart-mind energy. So the heart-mind had this sense of it being like a vessel that needed to be filled with this substance or this force, and that there were things that could crack it and make you lose it so that um, you would no longer be able to function fully as a a coherent and vibrant organism. Um, In the book, I end up talking about this in terms of truth-telling and disclosure around cancer diagnosis because hearing a sudden and terrifying truth like the fact that you have cancer can shock the heart-mind into suddenly losing its animating spirit and can kill people. So there are there scenes in the book where um, people learn the truth of their diagnosis and then suddenly get much worse physically and die very quickly. And the families accuse the physician who let slip what that diagnosis was or the family member who chose to tell them. They accuse them essentially of murder, of a kind of active killing, y- using information like an arrow. That's a, that's a metaphor from actually from Navajo more than it is from, from, from Thailand, but it's something that was a, that cracked this heart mind and drained it of heart mind energy that then caused the body to run amok and fall apart and die. Um, so your question though, was about this idea of heart mind energy and its connection to other, other things and other traditions and, you know, lots of, Oh, go, go ahead.
1: I mean, more than that, I'm curious what you think about, um, if you saw any differences between people who were said to have more gamlang chai than others, like if you were, if it was perce- perceivable by you. Um, yeah.
0: So um, one thing I'll say about that is that um, to maintain one's heart, mind, energy and to have a lot of it is an ethical responsibility because In a framework of karma, where all things have, all causes have effects, all actions have consequences, the maintenance of the state of your own heart-mind actually contributes to everyone else's. This is where a lot of the stuff that people find very alienating about Well, actually, honestly, a lot of Vedic religions, people in the West, you know, the idea of a bunch of monks meditating in a monastery out in the middle of nowhere, trying to create world peace, you know, that is sort of like a a stereotype that you could hear people be like, what, you know, what are they doing? (laughs) There's no material reality there. What's happening? This is not, I mean, prayer is sort of a similar
1: idea. Um, In the 60s, they did as well, though. (laughs) Say again. In the sixties they did it as well though. I yes, mean, right, the, exactly. The in the sixties they did it yeah. as well. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so but there the, there's a very like concrete material, immaterial mechanics, like a physics metaphysics that Thai people talk about that is not a zero-sum game, in which the achievement of wisdom or becoming like a, a, a better person and also the achievement of happiness and becoming a happier person. Both of those being a way to fill your heart mind with this kind of animating force is actually affects everyone else's as well. So there's there are a bunch of anthropologists who have written about um, how people manage The expression of and maintenance of emotion in a social space. And lots of people who travel to Thailand talk about how it feels like a weirdly um, artificially happy environment where... It's not okay to say negative things. You should, everybody needs to maintain face all the time. Everybody's smiling all the time. And that somehow it feels like none of that is real because we have this sense, and I think this comes from both Catholic and Protestant backgrounds and also lots of of Middle Eastern monotheistic traditions where there's like the truth is both dark and beautiful at the same time. Like it is through it is through the darkness that we obtain redemption. And that's like the purest level of, of engagement with meaning in, in real reality. Right. Um, In Thailand, it's like, you're messing with the collective, the collective zero sum mojo. Like literally if you, if you poison that atmosphere, you, you, you are really affecting all people involved. Um, So the question about, can you, tell who has gumling jai so it's this thing that like um when i got into working in thailand i ended up with all these friends who are just these unbelievable people who you hang out with them and they just fill you right the gumling jai is it's not just about how they're acting or how they're feeling it's like they've got enough of it that they're giving it to everybody else around them all the time Um, so there's this very I don't talk about this in the book at all, by the way. I love this question, (laughs) but, but there's, um, you know, there are all sorts of social contexts in which people express anger or in which people are, you know, selfish or, and, and they're mostly somewhat structured times when that is allowed or is, is, um, but there's this huge motive to, 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 um, have lots of heart, mind, energy and give it to other people. And the more you give it, the more you get it that kind of positive feedback looping that people talk about
1: i mean there's obviously so much more to talk about uh, regarding the book but we are kind of at the end of our time um so thank you so much for joining us scott stonington i'm your host armand Gildes, and this is the new books network until next time thank you so much for having me